welcome to a bonus episode of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast in August. Uh, not a classic uh, uh, podcast, but uh, nonetheless an entertaining look at a cyber law uh problem of considerable interest. Uh, uh, this is an Atlantic Council Cyber Statecraft Initiative uh, uh, panel on uh, uh, cyber espionage and whether the United States should abandon its traditional policy of refusing to conduct commercial espionage on behalf of U.S. companies. Uh, um, I participated in the panel, which was uh, chaired and moderated by uh, Melanie Toplinski, formerly with Steptoe and Johnson, uh, and currently at American University, uh, and including uh, um, Dmitry Alperovich, uh, the CEO of CrowdStrike, and Harvey Rishikoff uh, with the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Uh, without uh, further ado, uh, let's go to the Atlantic Council's panel on whether the United States should abandon its traditional policy of refusing to conduct commercial espionage. Hi, everyone, and um, welcome to the Atlanta Council for this month's Cyber Risk Wednesday event on rethinking uh, commercial espionage. For many of us, it's thinking about commercial espionage. Uh, my name is Barry Pavel. I'm an Atlanta Council Vice President and the Director of the Brent Scowcroft Center on International Security here. This will be a, a moderated discussion of this topic on some um, new concepts on, on commercial cyber espionage and intellectual property theft. As many of you may know, this is part of our ongoing monthly Cyber Risk Wednesday series, which brings cyber experts together with um, experts from government and industry and policymakers to examine uh, core topics. I'd also like to welcome our media partner, Passcode, which is the Christian Science Monitor's new uh, guide to security and privacy. Although it's a centuries-old phenomenon, economic espionage has in recent years become a, a daily reality for um, companies in the U.S. and around the world as a lot of sensitive business information, as many of you know, is increasingly stored and shared throughout networks. But the systematic theft of technology and trade secrets is often state-sponsored or at the very least state-sanctioned. And particularly at a certain scale, it's not merely an expensive nuisance to, to the victims, but it's really an attack against innovation and intellectual property rights Giving, giving companies who gain such data a significant advantage in the global marketplace. The U.S. government has taken a strong stance against states using their power to spy for the private sector's commercial benefit, publicly berating or even punishing countries like China, uh, as demonstrated by the indictment of five Chinese military hackers uh, last year. But despite advances in cyber defense techniques and tools and the U.S. government's law enforcement and diplomatic efforts, the pervasiveness of theft of intellectual property and trade secrets uh, certainly shows no signs of, of, um, of stopping. In addition to the impacts on the economy, today's discussion on commercial espionage is equally a prelude for a discussion on the role and utility of norms uh, of behavior of state and non-state actors. The panel, therefore, will discuss alternative policy options in terms of defending the private sector, considering innovative or even uh, dramatic solutions to the problem and debating whether the U.S. should join its adversaries and competitors in spying for profit or whether it should continue strictly abstaining from it. But 
uh, I think you'll hear some interesting uh, framing approaches from our moderator and our panel on this on this um, issue. So let me quickly introduce the panel. It's a really incredible group. Uh, I can't say I've had a green room discussion that lively in a while. Um, first, Dmitry Alperovich, um, one of my cyber gurus. Uh, he's the co-founder and, and CTO of CrowdStrike, and he's also a non-resident senior fellow here in the Scowcroft Center's Cyber Statecraft Initiative. At CrowdStrike, he leads the company's intelligence technology and, and CrowdStrike Labs teams. He, his teams daily are at the forefront of fighting state and non-state actors and protecting many sectors of U.S. industry against adversaries. Prior to founding CrowdStrike, uh, Mr. Alperovich was vice president of threat research at McAfee, where he led the global team investigating cyber, es cyber espionage uh, and, and other activities such as Operation Aurora and Night Dragon. He's a frequently quoted authority on all this stuff and, and in 2013 was named one of Foreign Policy Magazine's leading global thinkers. Stuart Baker, um, also a frequent uh, participant here, is a partner in the law firm Steptoe & Johnson covering cybersecurity, data protection, and foreign investment regulation. As an intelligence lawyer, he has been general counsel of the National Security Agency, uh, no doubt an active job, uh, and certainly uh, also of the commission that investigated WMD intelligence failures prior to the Iraq War. He previously served as the first assistant secretary for policy at the Department of Homeland Security. He's also, he is also the author of Skating on Stilts, a book on terrorism, cybersecurity, and other technology issues. Harvey Rishikoff is the chair of the advisory committee for the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. He was professor of law and national security studies at the National War College, where he chaired the Department of National Security Strategy. He, his career also includes numerous experiences in the private sector, academia, and public service, um, and he has a range of specialties that are relevant to this topic, as, re as well as numerous articles and book chapters. Uh, finally, but certainly not least at all, the panel discussion will be moderated by Melanie Teplinski. She's, she is adjunct professor at American University's Washington College of Law. Um, she previously practiced cyber law at Steptoe & Johnson, counseling leading financial services, telecoms, and other clients on a wide array of related issues. She has also worked on information technology policy in the executive office of the president um, as an analyst at the National Security Agency and at the Institute of Defense Analyses Center for Communications Research. Uh, we'll be tweeting uh, this session at um, hashtag ACCyber. Um, and I think without further ado, I'd like the panel to, to come on stage, and we'll start the discussion. Thanks, Barry. Um, thank you all for joining us today, and thanks to the Atlantic Council's Scowcroft Center for National Security and their Cyber Statecraft Initiative for hosting this today. We are in for a treat. Um, we have the privilege of having three of the best minds, really aces, in the cybersecurity field and the national security field on this panel today. And we're going to be debating whether or not the United States should continue to completely abstain from engaging in commercial espionage. With Chinese and Russian cyber spying routinely grabbing national head headlines, today's discussion really couldn't come at a better time. So I want to begin by taking a quick poll of the audience. I'd like to know by a show of hands, how many of you think that the U.S. should continue to completely abstain from engaging in commercial espionage? Okay. So what is that? Maybe keep, keep the hands up for a second. So about 30? Okay. We're going to take a poll again at the end of the debate to see how many of you are swayed by the arguments that you hear up here. And in the meantime, panelists, you have your work. Can I ask the other question? Because some, I bet some people are abstaining. 
<laughs> well, that's the end. Four. Okay. So you have your work cut out for you. So here's your first question, and it goes to Dmitry Alperovich. Dmitry, should the U.S. embrace commercial espionage? Well, first of all, as, as Barry said in his intro, this is a huge problem, and it's actually getting worse and worse. And we often cite our natural um, frenemies, if you will, in the space, China and Russia, as being the main problems, and, and they're certainly contributing to a massive uh, segment of the economic espionage that's being perpetrated against uh, the Western private sector. Uh, but the reality is it's no longer just them. In fact, most of our allies are engaging in this type of activity. At CrowdStrike, we're tracking actors out of India, out of uh, France, uh, Israel, South Korea, and many other countries. They're now engaging in economic espionage against our own um, uh, private sector companies and giving it uh, for the benefits of their own industries, whether state-owned industries or their um, uh, um, titans of industry. So the reality is that we've been trying to create a norm against uh, this type of conduct now for decades. And not only can we not convince um, the challenging partners like China and Russia, we can't even convince our closest friends. In fact, I don't think there's a country out there except us that actually takes a position that they will not conduct economic espionage for the benefit of our own private sector. So it's a norm that we're literally absolutely alone in the world in trying to create. And, and here's the, the other problem. Whenever we try to confront countries like China on these issues, and we've had a range of uh, efforts in this area, uh, ranging from prosecutions of their PLA officers last year, uh, that we uh, were convinced were engaged in activities against um, three major U.S. companies, uh, whether it's diplomatic pressure uh, that we've applied to them over the years, um, threat of financial sanctions that the Obama administration has now put out in the executive order a few months ago. None of that has worked. In fact, the... Um, in terms of what we're seeing out there from a CrowdStrike perspective, we're seeing just a continued escalation in these types of activities. And I, I said this four or five years ago now, but uh, there are only two types of companies out there, those that know that they've been hacked and those that don't yet know, and it's really completely true these days. Um, so in the absence of any effective measure, how can we convince um, not just the governments, but actually the private companies that are benefiting from this economic espionage that's being perpetrated by these governments from abstaining to do so? And I think... Um, the lever of actually uh, the U.S. intelligence community, which is arguably one of the best um, at perpetrating espionage, national security-related espionage in the world, um, essentially having a declaratory policy that we will punish the companies that are engaged in this activity um, and, and that are benefiting from this activity by perpetrating economic espionage against them and perhaps offering it not just to U.S. private sector but to everyone, um, for for uh, benefiting uh, uh, benefiting from I think I think uh, could actually have a, a deterrent effect uh, that would be very useful. Again, nothing that we've done up to this point has worked, so we may very well consider this as a new option. And I know there are a number of arguments against it, and let me just um, address a couple of them very briefly. One of them is that, uh, and this is an argument that doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever, but um, one I hear often from U.S. government officials is that those that steal can't innovate. And, of course, history is completely uh, putting that argument to bed. You look at the Soviet Union, for example. They had stolen the original nuclear designs for the atomic bomb back in the 40s. Uh, by early 50s, they had actually eclipsed us in, in that technology and were the first ones to actually come out with a hydrogen bomb. They had stolen the original blueprints for the space shuttle, and their space shuttle, the Buran, that was developed in the 80s, was actually the only one that could fly atomically. So the idea that you... Can't, you can't innovate while you're stealing is, is completely nonsense. In fact, it can actually help you um, to, to innovate because it gets you there faster. And the second argument is we just don't do this, right? This is not in our national character. And again, history doesn't bear this. Um, 
You look at the uh, Samuel Slater, the father of the Industrial American Revolution. He had wholesale stole the textile technology from the British, came over here and, and built the textile industry. Um, uh, he was called Slater the Trader uh, for this uh, in Britain, but uh, we proudly uh, now call him the father of our Industrial Revolution. Um, of course, uh, our entire NASA and space industry was wholesale stolen from the Germans. Um, uh, after World War II, you could say that to the victor goes the spoils, but we shamelessly uh, benefited from taking uh, that technology and those people and putting them to work. So the idea that we just don't do it um, doesn't make any sense either. All right. So, Stuart, do you agree with everything Dimitri just said? You know, I, I agree with some of it. Uh, I, I agree all this talk about norms, which this administration has taken to uh, it's a, an extreme, is silly. It's, it's, a, it's a waste of, of, of breath to uh, uh, invoke norms in this context or to suggest that there's some international uh, legal or ethical uh, restraint on this. Uh, that, uh, that's not how intelligence uh, agencies operate. At the same time, I think there's a perfectly cynical case to be made against doing commercial espionage. Uh, and that's, that's why I remain uh, deeply skeptical about uh, moving to uh, commercial espionage. Uh, uh, and, you know, the, the bumper sticker is we shouldn't do it because we would suck at it. Um, <laughs> the, uh, but let me unpack that a little. Um, uh, the... Nobody builds a, an intelligence community in order to steal commercial secrets for their uh, businesses. Uh, uh, the Japanese, the Germans have uh, wonderful uh, uh, innovative industries, and they don't steal secrets by and large because they've never built the kind of intelligence community that would allow them to do it. This is a Stealing commercial secrets is a sideline for an intelligence community that already exists. And it's not a, um, and this, this keeps happening to me. I was around the first time this issue came up uh, uh, in the early 90s when uh, uh, there was discussion about whether the intelligence community ought to be stealing commercial secrets. And it wasn't uh, a, a coincidence that it came as the, uh, Cold War was ending because the Soviet Union had broken up. And the question then is, do we really need all this intelligence capability? And the people who thought we did were looking for things it could do. And uh, at a time when it was uh, the economy stupid uh, and we worried about our competitiveness, particularly with Japan at the time, uh, there was a lot of attention paid to the possibility of gathering intelli commercial intelligence that might help the competitiveness of U.S. industry, but it really was a sideline for the existing uh, uh, community. Uh, the other thing that you need, other than an existing intelligence community, is a really close relationship with industry. Um, uh, that is, those of us who have actually been both producers and consumers of intelligence, I think would agree that intelligence is never any good until the consumers sit down and tell the intelligence community exactly what they want. They say, what is this? This is no good to me. 
I, you know, I, I want this guy's communications, not some other bozo. I, and, and that kind of feedback is what makes the intelligence community rise to the occasion and actually give you what you want. Which means you have to have an industry that is so intimately related to its, uh, uh, to the government that they don't mind walking into the intelligence community and saying, no, this is not it. I need that. Uh, and the intelligence community doesn't mind hearing that from them. Uh, you need what amounts to state champions who are well integrated into uh, uh, the government in a way that, frankly, U.S. industry simply isn't. Uh, I, and so I, I, I don't think we would get, we'd get the, the occasional secret, but we wouldn't get the things that were most valuable to the companies that we most wanted to help. Uh, so let me let Harvey just weigh yep. in for a second. Harvey, we've heard now that it's probably nonsense to think about the international legal framework as being a restraint on this kind of behavior. What do you think about that? Well, first let me thank the Atlantic Council for putting the forum on. I'm a strong believer in John Stuart Mill, which is it's very important to get issues debated. And this is one of those issues and positions that is alive inside the public wheel. And thank you, Barry, and Mill for doing this. The first issue is um, just espionage per se, espionage. So uh, even though Stuart said he was there at the beginning and we've known each other for a very long time, it actually espionage begins in the Old Testament. <laughs> so uh, the idea of states spying on each other is an old, old tradition, as old as the, many of the oldest professions that we have. And often those professions have been intertwined. Um, so then the question becomes, well, why do we do this? Well, we do it for, we're very interested in the adversary's intent and very interested in the adversary's capability. So it's usually why we spend all this money in espionage and why we do it is for intent and capability. When you move to the economic sphere, as Stuart pointed out, Usually nations that have what we call either state-owned enterprises or, quote, national champions. They're the states that usually feel comfortable or in their, have a, a cultural capacity and socioeconomic capacity to spy for specific purposes. And so the question when dealing with those groups are frenemies, as Dimitri pointed out, because you'd be stunned if you'd see the array of countries that do this, um, is, okay, so... How do we respond? So my, my belief is that the response is much more of a response that will focus on the product as sovereign. So what we're seeing now in this particular context is if you're a Microsoft or if you're a Google, you want to actually compete around the world. You are no longer, quote, an American company. You are no longer, quote, a French company. Westinghouse is owned by the Japanese in the dominant percent. So what is American? It's almost an archaic concept. So the question is, what are we worried about? What you're worried about, what many of the people in this room are, who are the attorneys, is you're worried about your patents. You're worried about your trade secrets. Uh, you're worried about your intellectual property. But you're worried as, a, as an entity, an economic entity, not as an American or a German or a, someone who's Chinese. So the real issue is, what we, which is, I think, the path to go is, how do you penalize countries and companies that are pursuing this violation of these particular economic rights? And right now, we're in a strategic vulnerability. I mean, I would say that most people think that I know for the next three to seven to eight years, offense is going to be much better than defense. 
And if that's true, what are the penalties that we can impose for offensive actions? It is true we've had a difficulty at the international level. If you notice, the, the group of experts met, and we, they came up with three norms that we, they all agreed on, such as you, know, you shouldn't attack, let's say, the, the certs, the response teams. But the fourth norm of economic espionage, we could not get agreement in the world. There was a clear value distinction between understanding the restriction of, quote, economic espionage. And that means that we, in the long run, I think, are going to have to use the private sector and the private sector as the battering ram to be able to explain why they do not want to have their secrets improperly taken, regardless of which country it is. And as Stuart pointed out, my last point, when we were together in the government, we thought, well, we could do this, but we wouldn't know who to give the information to without violating, and violating antitrust laws. So that became a huge problem. And Dimitris, which I like to think of him as the Robin Hood of the cyber regime, where you would gather up the secrets and spread them liberally, I don't think that most economic interests would find that the most rational way for us to go forward given our value system. So that's my end point, which is that we should focus on the core group, which is the private sector, and work with the private sector given their interests in being able to protect their appropriate understanding of their intellectual property or their trade secrets, and then start moving towards the marketplace that way is going to be the most fruitful way, as opposed to us using our interests to do that in either of the position put forward by my esteemed and cherished okay. friends. All right, so we have a question for Robin Hood, then. Are you going to be <laughs> distributing... Hat. <laughs> I need to get you, but right. Maybe, some, maybe Robin Hood in tights. Um, God, we'll have no, to no. guess. <laughs> I think a lot of us would pay money for that. <laughs> so here's the question. Um, we talked about maybe the possibility of spreading intelligence to lots of folks. Who is it that you are thinking will be the recipients, right, the customers, as Stuart says, of the intelligence that's being collected? Are we going to be giving this intelligence to specific countries, to specific businesses? Are we going to be choosing among companies within the United States, company A, company B, potentially competitive companies? How are we going to decide where this intelligence goes? Well, you could make it completely public. Leverage WikiLeaks, I'm sure they would take it. <laughs> but, I mean, my, my whole point is um, that we have to find a way to punish these companies, right? It's, it's ultimately about deterrence. It's not about providing benefit to our commercial sector. Our commercial sector uh, is capable of competing just fine when they're not facing this type of threat and when all of their trade secrets and intellectual property is not being stolen left and right. In that situation, they cannot compete. And everything that we've tried up to this point has not worked. And, frankly, some of the uh, measures that we might want to take um, that could potentially have um, some beneficial um, uh, impacts, like actually engaging in sanctions against those companies, um, are very dangerous because uh, we have tremendous relationships, uh, diplomatic and commercial, with many of these countries. And uh, you know, even if we just take China as, as an example, jeopardizing our entire trade relationship with China uh, would have a massive impact on our economy. So up to this point, we have not been willing to do that, right? And we've sort of talked out of both sides of our mouth because on one hand, we're saying that cyber is the greatest threat to civilization, and, uh, and uh, some officials have even said it's, it's even bigger than terrorism. On the other hand, anytime we bring up uh, uh, the issue of uh, sanctions against China, we say, oh, wait, wait a second. That's a very important commercial relationship, right? We can't seem to pick one or the other. So in the absence of that, this can be another tool to actually impose costs on these companies, because if they steal uh, this information, but then uh, that information is retrieved from them, not just the ones, uh, the things that they steal, but also anything that they, uh, they um, create indigenously, particularly their trade secrets, their customer lists, their pricing information, and it's passed on to WikiLeaks as an example, 
um, that would create um, significant impact to their business. And the idea that we don't work closely with industry, um, certainly the intelligence community uh, doesn't, but Commerce Department is there pre pretty much for this very purpose. They work very, very closely with industry when they negotiate trade agreements to figure out which things we're going to relax tariffs on and which ones we won't because of the impact of the U.S. industry. Uh, there's great collaboration there. Uh, President of the United States regularly lobbies on behalf of our industry. In fact, uh, uh, a few years ago, he picked up the phone and talked to the president of Indonesia to lobby for a massive contract for Boeing so that the Indonesians would buy Boeing instead of Airbus, and that ended up being the largest deal in Boeing's history. So the idea that we don't try to benefit uh, U.S. companies uh, is completely nonsense. In fact, the whole debate in Congress over TPP was, are we getting enough of a preferential treatment for our American companies uh, to preserve American jobs, right? So... Our entire policy, in fact, is how do we get an advantage in this field as opposed to trying to have an, an equal playing field. Well, let's talk about that for just a second. Does the U.S. engage in economic espionage now, and is that distinct from what you're proposing that we engage in in the future? Can, can somebody speak to that issue? So we do. Where we think it will affect policymakers, we do economic uh, intelligence gathering. Uh, so uh, uh, since really since the 1973 oil embargo, uh, the prospect that oil would be a weapon has led the U.S. to be focused on what's the state of oil supplies around the world uh, and what's going to happen to the market. Are we going to have another shock like 1973, 1979? Uh, um, and that, you know, led to, I, I suspect, I have no idea, the Petrobras uh, uh, intrusions that uh, uh, the Brazilians got so upset about, although it turns out that Petrobras is an arm of the government because uh, uh, that's where all the government officials went to get paid. Um, uh, but uh, we've always done that. Uh, if we're negotiating over uh, um, economic issues with other countries, we might feel comfortable trying to find out what their negotiating position is going to be. Um, and, and to go to the question that uh, uh, Dimitri raised was how do we raise the price for the people who are uh, stealing our secrets? It seems to me you could engage in what you might call uh, commercial counterintelligence. That is to say, if you think uh, a company is benefiting from hacked information from a, a particular company, I think there was a, uh, a fairly famous case in which uh, Chinese companies were benefiting from the offshore oil exploration di discoveries of a U.S. company. If you can break into that Chinese oil company that's bidding against the U.S. company using its information, the U if the intelligence community can get into their system and find that information, and then we can impose on using the OFAC uh, uh, rule that was recently adopted uh, sanctions just on that one company or even supply the information to the, comp uh, to the uh, victim and let them sue for violations of uh, trade secrets uh, and the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, uh, uh, that will be a very focused sanction. doesn't raise the entire U.S.-China relationship. It just ra raises one company's benefit from uh, a violation of U.S. law. Uh, and I think you could easily justify that kind of uh, use of our intelligence capabilities. So you'd be proposing a broadening of the Economic Espionage Act, which right now doesn't have a private right of action. And also... You know, we, there are actually three ways that you mm -hmm. could bring those lawsuits today. There's there's State Trade Secrets Act. There is the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which does have a, a civil uh, 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 suit provision. And what I love, 337, 
allows you to exclude from the U.S. market any unfairly traded item, sure. which would certainly include things that were obtained mm -hmm. by violations of trade secrets. Uh, uh, so you could cut them off from the U.S. market. Mm -hmm. uh, all those things are existing law. So th let me just follow on that. So, um, so one of the dramatic events in this debate has been that was the attack on Sony. So the Sony was distinctive for two reasons from our world. One is they did something that was a little bit unusual, was they did a wipe and swipe. They removed data and destroyed data. That has usually been sort of a no-no in way the way you do this type of penetration. You usually penetrate and copy and exfiltrate, but you don't destroy. So that was a, 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 a bit of a game changer. And the third piece is a release it, which is. And, and then, and then the second thing also was, which is different for our norms, is we perceived it as an attack on the First Amendment. And that the motivation of the attack was a dislike of a certain amount of speech. Now, I don't know how many of you actually have seen the film, uh, but I'm pretty sure the Academy will not be, um, honoring it for its extraordinary achievement. But nonetheless, you have a right to that speech. You have, the key thing about the first one is a right to bad speech and poor speech, up to a point. So, and then the, as Dimitri said, then releasing it. So that naming and shaming was unique, in which the government actually identified North Korea. And then the second part, which uh, Stuart was talking about, is the Office of Foreign Assets Control. We had an executive order passed that allows now the United States to use its capacity to name specific individuals and accounts. I don't know how many of you have read the recent um, Iran uh, contra the Iran deal on the nuclear issues, but of the 150 pages, about 50 of the pages is naming specific companies and individuals. And that to me becomes a good way of moving forward in naming and shaming and actually trying to freeze assets for this violation of economic espionage. That to me is a very prudent, and we will get a lot of, I think, support with that from around the world if we start to pursue that as being a much more effective way. And it gave the president, which he said, either we did nothing or we were going to declare war on you. Well, you need something in between in the modern age. You need these other instruments, which we are now starting to shape and, and hone. And I think that's a very uh, positive way of understanding how we should think about going forward in the future. So are sanctions and naming and shaming and private actions against companies who've used or otherwise improperly obtained information or IP from U.S. companies, are those things together enough to get us there, Dimitri, or do we also need to be engaged in an additional piece of uh, uh, expanding the use of espionage for the benefit of private corporations. I, I think if we actually applied sanctions on these companies, uh, that would have a tremendous yeah. effect. Um, I'm going to wait and see mode to, to uh, determine if we will actually take that step, because one of the things that the Chinese are notorious for is reciprocating in an asymmetric fashion. Uh, when we did indictments against the PLA officers that broke out, um, broke out of the talks we were having with them on other cyber issues. So. The idea that they will just sit there and take it, I think, is uh, uh, no one takes that seriously, and we're afraid of what the repercussions may be. It will probably be a significant impact to U.S. industry that's trying to do business in China, and I suspect that's one of the reasons that why we, we've been so hesitant in, in taking that sort of action. Um, so I think th this type of activity certainly offers yet another tool in a toolbox um, that uh, we can use when we 
can't take the action against the Chinese, for example, because we're afraid of the broader impact to our relations. And frankly, you know, you look at our relationship with China, we have so many issues outside of cyber, you know, maritime issues, Iran, Russia, etc., um, that um, the idea that we would just jeopardize that relationship on this one issue alone, I think, that is not credible. That actually brings me to something else. We've all kind of been assuming that the level of Chinese economic espionage is um, uh, so great that it demands this kind of reaction. There's been some writing recently that suggests that maybe China is not regularly passing the information that they gather to civil sector firms as part of government policy, or at least that it's not happening on such a scale that it would cripple competitiveness in the U.S. If that's the case, would that change the calculus, or do you just think that's not the case? Well, let me, let me respond this way. So let me give you a hypothetical. Uh, you have companies that have created um, a business in which they charge you to go behind paywalls for documents. And that's a very viable business in journalism and all, and all this. And hypothetically, you find that there may be sites in, let's say, Russia that seem to have downloaded significant numbers of these particular documents and are now giving them away for free. So what is the appropriate response for the United States government on behalf of those particular corporations to go forward? And as Dimitri points out, we have many, many interests with these states. But from the perspective of the individual economic unit, that's their interest. And they see their economic livelihood slowly being eroded as they lose the capacity in order to be able to charge for the products that they lawfully have. We need a solution for that particular set of problems. And there's a variety. I think, of, I think they need a new business model. <laughs> <laughs> that may well be, but we also need a solution as to how far we can go and what can be done. And there's a variety of things that can be done overtly and covertly. And there are a variety of things that we can use and engage the United States instruments and both the, the legal systems and the process we have. And that, to me, is where that's a very viable sense. And I'm sure you've seen that a lot, Dimitri, in what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. And we actually see a very close relationship where things happen uh, in terms of intrusion uh, into companies right around particular business negotiations, and there's a direct effect that you can draw from one point to the other. Um, I will say this. I think if U.S. had come out um, and said, even if they're just considering this, uh, this officially, the idea that we'll use the full power of our intelligence community to benefit the private sector, I think it would start in a very interesting discussion with our allies and, and uh, our, our not-so-close allies about that maybe we should have some norms about this and maybe that this is... Uh, too, too much, and uh, now is the time to come back to the negotiation table. That could be a really interesting tactic. Well, let me ask you a question about that. Do the Russians and Chinese have a lot to steal? A lot of IP to steal? Oh, well, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's one of the questions that this might be, I've dealt with some groups. Who are, this is a maturity issue, and that as the, our adversaries start to understand their own innovations and their desire for intellectual property to protect it, that once they have things that they want to protect, they'll be able to understand why it's a bad thing to go forward and have someone take But if we're it. not doing it, they have zero incentives to, to do so. And, you know, I, I actually see no um, evidence in history that that's ever the case. The Soviets have developed tremendous capabilities in, let's say, their defense sector, right? In many ways, they have some very interesting technologies. That hasn't stopped them from stealing, and that hasn't stopped them from trying to protect that intellectual property. And, and I think it's actually a very arrogant position that, mm. that some of us take 
that they have nothing worth valuable to steal. There's actually a lot of innovation happening out of China. They have tremendous number of academic papers that are being uh, filed. They have numerous patents. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but uh, this is the paid. country that invented the 140-character limit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really, we can innovate. <laughs> well, and, and I actually think that our position to, to, on this issue of, of doing economic mm-hmm. espionage is actually because we're number one. If in 30, 40 years, God forbid, we're no longer number one, are we really going to take the same same approach that uh, in order to get to that uh, uh, first uh, first place, we'll, we'll never do this? Uh, I'm very dubious of that. You know, I, I, I think I, I, I hesitate to say this because I can't be sure, but I sensed the last time I was in Paris talking to the French government about these issues, a real sea change. I mean, they used to be unrepentant uh, stealers of commercial secrets. Everybody knew that the... Uh, first-class seats in Air France were bugged so that they could pick up uh, 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 secrets and a host of other things. You always got the same hotel room when you uh, uh, checked into Paris hotels if you had commercial secrets. Uh, And interestingly, the last time I was there, they wanted to talk about private remedies for cyber theft of commercial secrets uh, uh, because they are now more losers than gainers from uh, uh, the theft of commercial secrets. Uh, And so, uh, you know, to the extent that that makes... Dimitri's argument, I think it's it's it, it's very real. Uh, mm. If people start to lose things they care about, uh, they do sh- uh, change their uh, their view. I think rather than this silly pursuit of international norms, they should tell the legal advisor to go home and focus on finding like-minded countries that would use domestic law in the mm-hmm. a way parallel to our OFAC mm-hmm. sanctions and our trade secrets laws uh, so that we have a set of like-minded countries that will impose these sanctions on the same companies if one of them finds that commercial secrets have been stolen to, for the benefit of a Chinese or a Russian company. More than one country may bring these lawsuits. Uh, that would start to have a real impact. But um, sorry, um, it's getting harder and harder to find a country that will actually stand up to China. Maybe maybe you can't stand up to China, but you can stand up to one Chinese company. And you don't think that there will be repercussions for doing so in other areas? You know, I have to say, uh, China is going to squeeze out Western technology companies as fast as it can, no matter what we do. And and uh, it's overdetermined already. But Dimitri, uh, uh, so I, I I actually don't. Th- I think they are already doing as much as they can to discourage the use of Western uh, technology and Western companies. But you understand? You would agree, though, that, that the that the discipline will come from the marketplace. And if we can have a, a collective marketplace response, that would be the most effective way to do it. It is, but it's, uh, it's sort of the prisoner's dilemma that no one wants to collectively act together, even though that that's beneficial to them because they're afraid of the penalties that they'll suffer individually. And if we get caught stealing their secrets, there could be repercussions for that, too. <laughs> so are there ways to get out of the prisoner's dilemma? Exactly. That's the ways of getting out of the prisoner's dilemma, other than just tunneling. <laughs> right. So some form of... Right. Incentives. It's an incentive structure that you give to the to the in order to join versus we have a very large market and it's banding those markets together with the Europeans. And I said the, uh, the one other factual thing is I think Canada, the moral superpower, also says it won't steal for economic purposes. So is this already illegal? But hockey, that's different. Well, that's, different. <laughs> <laughs> that's totally different. Right? Yes. Is it illegal today as things stand under international law or in the international frameworks? 
is it illegal to engage in this behavior? No. Well, unclear, right? Well, if you, is that the answer to everything from violates, violates local law, right? And it is practiced by every nation in the world. Right. But if you find that you have violated a patent, we have a right to go forward. Patents? Yeah, sure. The ECMS, we have a right to go forward. That's not international law. That's domestic law. But you use your domestic law in order to say that you have violated the patents and you try to enforce it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, so as a matter of international frameworks, the behavior is permissible, but as a matter of local law, Right. We, we did not ask the international community, is it okay to execute the Rosenbergs? We just did it. <laughs> I know, but this issue is more concerned <laughs> with WTO, right, and what the rules right, are so for the WTO. So we have trips. We have a range of norms and apparatus that we've said that we've used in order to police this issue. So can you talk a little bit about that? Well, that's the issue about whether or not we should it. be using that as the most effective mechanism is to be used the international organizations that are there to regulate trade in order to try to enforce what the rights are. And then the question is, as Demetrius, what's your remedy and how do you impose that remedy and how do you impose that remedy effectively? So, yes, we can indict individuals, but if we cannot enforce the indictment, and at the same time the country then uses other apparatus in order to get around those indictments, that's a problem. But the question is, it's clearly a violation of the law to having to having done and performed those acts under the domestic law. Yes, I, and I'm, I'm profoundly skeptical about the idea of trying to use w, the WTO to solve this problem. I, uh, I think we will, uh, we will not be happy with the results. So should we open up to some questions from the so, audience? We've gone a long time, and I see there are people right in the front ready to go. Hi, Randy, how are you? <laughs> and actually, I think we, before we start, I think there was a question there may be a question right in front of you from Voice of America. Is that still the case? Are they still online? Does anyone know? Maybe I've scared them. Okay. Well, let's start with Randy. And we'll, oh, we do have the question on. Why don't we go there first, and Randy will yeah. come to you second. Um, I apologize for that. Yeah, I'm, I'm Monica from Voice America, the Chinese branch. Uh, I think uh, my question is partially uh, answered during your discussion. And uh, basically, you know, last week, FBI released a video called The Company Man, and in that video, uh, it singles out Chinese company uh, and businessman as the perpetrator of the economic espionage. So uh, basically, my question is, what's your comment on that um, video? Uh, do you think there's a purpose for the FBI to release such a video at this moment? And, um, you know, meanwhile, the White House was reluctant to blame China for for the uh, OPM cases. So what do you think? Thank you. Well, I'll just start off is that the FBI survey said of the 165 U.S. companies found that China was the perpetrator in 95% of the economic SBS cases. So I think what the Bureau is doing is just saying, let's look at our range of cases, and then who do we see as the perpetrator in those cases? Um, and the question of the, that's a pure economic calculation based on a matter of law of doing the investigations. Uh, the question of the reluctance of the government, the United States government to identify who they believe were the perpetrators of the OPM, I think ri uh, rises to high politics. And that's an issue in which as Dimitri put out, we have many, many interests with many, many different countries. 
And China knows what it does, and we know what we do. So the issue is, how do we start setting certain number of norms in that area, if we can, uh, to generate what the best way is to go forward? Because clearly, I would say that all three of us were probably victims of that particular perpetration. I received our notes, our letters, and we're saying this has become quite personal vis-a-vis what the consequences are for what that perpetration means, and I think that's why the United States government... But Harvey, you got free credit monitoring. (laughs) (laughs) Really? You should thank them. There was one argument. One argument is that perhaps the Chinese, whoever did it, will be more efficient in holding the records, so we'll be able to access them a little bit more easily in the future. Just uh, as as an aside on the credit monitoring, I do think that the U.S. government should consider a policy of just taking a couple bucks off everyone's tax returns and just giving them free credit monitoring, uh, because one, everyone in the United States at this point needs it, because their information has been stolen one way or another, and two, it takes this whole issue of the table because companies and, and government agencies can mm-hmm. no longer hide behind that response of, we gave you credit monitoring, so everything must be okay. Is CrowdStrike doing credit monitoring now? Or are you guys- <laughs> no. But uh, um, one, one more comment on the stats. Um, I, I think those stats were absolutely correct uh, even a year ago. Um, they, they've changed dramatically. We have seen a, a significant escalation from uh, Russia in perpetrating economic espionage against pretty much everything that's not bolted down. Uh, because of the sanctions, they're um, escalating their efforts to create domestic industries in terms of payment uh, cards, pharmaceuticals, and other things where they're uh, really suffering. So um, that's actually changing quite a bit. And other countries are jumping into this game. I mean, um, uh, you know, our closest allies are perpetrating economic espionage against us, and we, we shouldn't forget that. Uh, five years ago, this was almost exclusively a China issue. It no longer is. Randy, thanks for the invitation. Uh, Randy Ford with Raytheon. Just a, a point of information on that previous thing. They didn't just release it yesterday. That, that company man video has been circulating for at least That's 18 true. months. Yeah. Every FBI field office in the United States has been out to every single group. I've seen it at least twice. I walked out of a third time because I couldn't take it anymore. And it's interesting. It's kind of quaint because it's really about old-style espionage, not the cyber thing that we're talking about. So anyway, um, we talked about, um, Stuart, you mentioned the, the previous look. Well, 25 years ago, I was a deputy assistant Secretary of State and INR, uh, Judge Webster asked me to lead the task force which actually reviewed the policy of whether or not we should use the U.S. intelligence community to provide the uh, private sector with information. And uh, almost exactly 25 years ago today, I turned in a report to the DCI, which I personally wrote, drafted, and got through the interagency process. Um, the report was 55 pages long. Uh, the legal annex, you and Harvey will be appreciative to hear, was 125 pages long. And all of the issues that you raised, who is us, who is them, how do we do it, how do we take an intelligence community that's used to providing information through all the national technical means for policy customers and turn that around, um, how do you sort out what is truly an American government? I mean, this was in 1990, and things are a million times more complicated today in terms of cross-holding and international and so on. We have a Silicon Valley today, which is at war with Washington, won't even cooperate to stop terrorist attacks in this country, and they're going to turn around and take intelligence information from the U.S. government to go out and try to go into those international markets if they're so afraid that they can't have a back door into their systems to stop terrorism? I'm very, very skeptical. So, Dimitri, CrowdStrike, 
If we have a problem with cyber, why aren't we enabling the people that are getting attacked and robbed to defend themselves actively, dynamically, and to go after the people that are stealing their information? A bank, a commercial bank, can shoot the robber that comes in to steal their money. Why can't companies that are having their information stolen go out and do something dynamically to the very entities, the individuals who are doing that? We know exactly who the people are that are attacking my company. We have screenshots of them down to the individual. You can do that as well. So if we're serious about this, instead of going off on a road that there are a thousand reasons why it won't work, but legal and me uh, mechanically, why don't we do something that would actually get at the problem? So is Randy right? Is private sector action the alternative? Do you want to take that? <laughs> so, yeah, I, 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 apparently this was not a hot enough topic we ought to bring Hack back into. Yes. Uh, I... I, I as you know, I think we need to let companies do much more uh, uh, outside of their network than they currently are uh, allowed to do. I'm not sure I would I would encourage them to shoot back at this point, to, uh, uh, but they certainly should, uh, at a minimum, uh, uh, have scopes that allow them to uh, point out uh, the people that uh, are doing it so that uh, sanctions can be imposed, so that lawsuits can be brought, uh, uh, so that the stuff can be recovered before it's uh, misused. Uh, um, there are many use cases where law enforcement is not going to be any use because, as, as I often say uh, in the words of the NRA, when seconds count, the police are only minutes away. Uh, and that, that is true in cyber as well. And so we do need to encourage especially uh, hot pursuit kinds of uh, action that isn't causing damage to other people's computers. Let me just say this. This is not a cyber problem, Randy. This is an economic problem, and we need an economic response to it, which is why we should consider all methods that we can use to put pressure on the beneficiaries of this data. So let Randy's frustration, uh, which came through in his passionate statement, We've known each other for a long time, is part of the crux of the issue. You have a clear problem, you have a clear violation, and we don't have clean, clear remedies. So one of the issues, as you know, is going forward and going forward with government when you have this problem and generating a, pro a solution that what we're worried about in the private sector is you're worried about your liability issue, you're worried about immunity issues, and that's why we need, I think, legislation would be helpful for the private sector. And then to see what would be an appropriate response, which understanding what the potential consequences are when you start becoming more active versus in addition to a more economic response to penalize those people in the market for having done that. But I, we all know with people in the audience, this is a real, real issue why you have a turnout like this, because the private sector is experiencing such frustration without what appears to be a clean remedy. I see a gentleman in the back, and then there's a gentleman right here for next. <laughs> so, hi. Uh, um, very interesting conversation, but, but the thing that where I feel you're cheating is that you're talking in terms of espionage. In some regimes, espionages are acts of war. Other times, it's industrial espionage. And when I look at Harvey's example, when I look at the examples that you're all offering, there's a difference between espionage, exfiltration of information, versus the example of you go behind the firewall and release it. Where do you draw the line in the, the advice you give on policy between, oh, no, no, let's keep the conversation to espionage versus 
what is the real issue, some form of economic warfare that happens to use digital media as the as the, the space. And I'm targeting you, Dimitri, in this particular because that's the battle space where you're most familiar. You do the intrusion detection. And as far as the firewalls are concerned, if somebody take exfiltrates something but leaves a logic bomb behind, what do we call it? Do we call it sabotage or espionage? So give us insight on how you design in a warfare context as opposed to taking refuge in a very, very, very narrow definition of espionage? I, I think that's a great question. I think we're actually fundamentally misunderstanding the nature of warfare in this domain. Uh, we are so focused from a U.S. government perspective on kinetic effects. How do we get something to blow up? Because that's what we're used to. That's what, uh, you know, if, if uh, it looks like a nail, you know, uh, you need a hammer for it, right? Um, screwed up that analogy. <laughs> yeah, I, like I, I, I think um, you nailed it, but that's <laughs> But um, the, uh, um, if you look at how China and Russia in particular look at this problem, they look at it as information operations, right? It's no wonder that when we see statements from the Russian government, they say that they're facing numerous cyber attacks. They lump into that blog posts that are critical of the regime as a cyber attack because they're saying someone is going to my information sphere and they're putting something on it that can destabilize my regime. The Chinese, uh, same thing. And you look at some of their actions, both in cyberspace and, and elsewhere, uh, they are all focused on information operations, um, psychological warfare. Uh, one great example of this is uh, during this Ukrainian conflict uh, when they were able to intercept the conversations of Victoria Newland with an ambassador in Kiev. What did they do? They put it on YouTube and uh, where Victoria Newland used some some language uh, that was a little bit too powerful about her European colleagues, right? Would we ever, oh, in a million no. years... God bless her. <laughs> <laughs> this is Atlantic Council. We can't talk right Sorry. now. <laughs> but uh, would we ever, in a million years, if we had the same success, we were able to intercept Putin talking trash about uh, President Xi, would we ever, ever release it publicly? No, we would lock it up under you know five locks and we would pat ourselves on the back for the incredible get that we, we, we accomplished here, but we would never even think about using it in a way that could actually jeopardize his standing uh, in terms of the relationship with China or, or what have you. So we, I think, need to think more broadly about how we use those tools and how do we actually impact um, the perception of, of their populations using cyber because it can be tremendously effective in that way. And I think it's actually a lot less effective in the kinetic effects that we tend to focus on. So the, the first response is a full disclosure. The gentleman is, is a co-author of mine, a, a piece years ago. Um, a totally different issue. Uh, this issue, though, as you know, there's the Talon Manual, and the Talon Manual is trying to go forward and try to do the what I always call the classification issue. Okay, because we're all lawyers are all about classification. Because once we understand what the classification is, we know which body of law to apply. Yeah, well, let's, <laughs> <laughs> well, no one can afford Stuart and myself. But um, the, the issue is, um, so the classification is what Dimitri is saying is, what is projection of force? What do we mean by that? And what is the projection of harm? So the law of armed conflict has been very focused historically on kinetic issues and the issues of destruction of p people and property, the kinetic force. No, check first. Right, exactly. I'm, I, it's a very different understanding. So that's why it's scope and scale. So what we're really focusing now in, is the scope and scale issue. 
So we know that the argument would be if you took down our energy infrastructure, we would see that probably as a very hostile act, and we would res respond, we believe, proportionately and with the appropriate discrimination. The issue of the cyber is it's hard to discriminate because these systems are tied so quickly into their actual infrastructures. So one of the issues is, can you get it? For instance, it is a norm in the law of armed conflict that you should not be able to attack individuals who have the Red Cross or the uh, Red uh, Crescent. That's We've agreed to that, right? That That's a norm. So the issue would be, should there be similar like cyber norms? And then should we then also say, which a group of us have been talking about is, you would actually distinguish the way we do for separate grids for clear military installations versus civilian installations. So you by identifying in the system what would be a lawful target versus an unlawful target. But that starts creating a whole new logic about what you are saying, about putting cyber in that context. And then how much is the, the real issue is what is the red line? And the red line, as you know, both in the law of armed conflict and the physical and cyber world, is a policy decision, not often a per se technical decision. So we're in the same issue of deciding scope and scale, policy determination, and a general agreement as to what as goes over one side, which is clearly, let's quote, hostile or harm, versus clearly now economic penetration because of scope and scale. And that's what, what we're really sort of wrestling with analytically, both from a policy issue, a law issue, and an analytical problem. But Harvey, if we just take Sony as an example, the three things that happened, the exfiltration of data, which is pretty common these days, the destruction of data, which is a lot less common, and then the release of that data publicly, I've actually argued that if you look at the impact of all those three actions, the release of it publicly was the worst thing that could have happened to them and will have repercussions to come. This is the reason Amy Pascal now no longer has a job because of the emails that she had written about President Obama and so forth. But Dimitri, the real question is, I'm in, in um, nonviolent agreement with you. The question is, what is the appropriate remedy? Do you bomb the entity? Do you use force on the entity? Do you use a cyber response? You can use anything you, you want. But, you what's, but what would be the most appropriate? It's not, it's not a legal question. I, I actually, I, I will only ask the audience one thing. I hope this is not a dated example. Every time Harvey uses the, the word norm, I want you to imagine the door to the bar cheers opening and the entire bar <laughs> shouting, no! <laughs> All right. <laughs> Always helpful in discussions. Um, but I understand that we have a panoply of, of instruments. What is your recommendation then for what would be so the appropriate? My, my recommendation okay. was that we uh, fill uh, 5,000 DVDs with that awful picture and put them in balloons and fly them over Pyongyang and drop them. I think someone actually did that. Yeah, he did. Uh, I, uh, Okay. <laughs> we have a question right here, third row. <laughs> Hi, uh, Paul Lyons with TSE. It's sort of building on what you guys are talking about right now, as we start to connect everything to the Internet, including the kitchen sink, what is an attack that takes out a physical object? You know, so it's a cyber-physical attack mm -hmm. that is done for economic gain. Mm -hmm. 
because we've talked at length here about mm -hmm. intellectual property, and I know we're in D.C., and all we do is produce paper and intellectual property, so it's our company, town, business. But mm -hmm. where's this distinction between cyber-physical come in in terms of the policy issue of espionage? Mm -hmm. It's not really espionage if it's a physical effect. It's, it, it's sabotage, yeah, it's and you can you can do the same thing. You know, once you have access to the system, you can do one or the other. Just as if you have a spy next to the president, you can you can assassinate him in, instead of stealing his secrets. Uh, so it, this is not an unusual or a, a new problem. Uh, but I think uh, you know, uh, sabotage and assassination are very different uh, and responded to very differently than espionage. Uh, you know, espionage is. You can be shocked, you can be upset, you can be outraged, you can break diplomatic relations, but you rarely go to war over simple espionage. And it's, the other issue you're saying is that there's an erosion of the physical world and the cyber world. And our worlds are set up with a notion of what the physical world is, many of our legal doctrines. And this new cyber issue is, as being sort of ephemeral is more complicated as we try to arrange in what the appropriate way is for us to deal with it. So your question is, wait, wait a second, there's a merger. And then Stuart very quickly says, yeah, but once you're in the physical world, we call that, as he said, sabotage. And we have doctrine to be able to deal with that problem. You're just using a different instrument. Instead of a bullet, you're using trons. Okay, got it. But just because of that difference, we still have ways of responding. And then again, that's a political decision. The political decision of do we, if you're looking for a fight, anything will be an excuse. If you decide that you do not want to project force, you can spend many, find many reasons why you will work within the frameworks that exist not to do it. It ultimately will become that final policy political decision as to what so, the appropriate response is. I don't think we do have doctrine to deal with most of these things. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's that's the problem. If, if you know, we, we have lawyers, but that's not the same as having doctrine. <laughs> uh, and, um, Certainly not better. We're in a situation where mm -hmm. many countries are testing to see mm -hmm. what our real red line right. is. That's true. I, yeah. a, and they're not finding one. Mm -hmm. And so every year there's more of this. The reason that mm -hmm. the Russians don't care about flooding uh, mm -hmm. our companies and our uh, uh, internet with uh, um, uh, uh, phishing emails is because the Chinese have showed that we're not going to react to that. And so uh, the Russians are in the Koreans are in, the Iranians are in, and, you know, Iceland will be in before we know it. Uh, and so we need a doctrine. If, if we don't want to see a continued erosion in our cyber position, we need to figure out where we're going to actually respond. Dare I say, a doc, I mean, like a norm doctrine? Is that what you're saying? No, the, I, the man who, no, no, as no, opposed to no, norms, not, no. loves doctrine? I have Dr. Robin and Dr. Doctrine here? <laughs> no, no, no. Spectacular. <laughs> yeah. Are there other audio questions? I see two. You're doing a great job. Thank you. Uh, my name is Michael Grouske. I'm an intern at CSIS and a rising junior at Claremont McKenna College. Um, and my question is, what are the opinions, uh, either real or perceived, in foreign countries regarding, uh, and, and particularly China, I guess, would be my question, regarding the use of economic uh, cyber espionage by both the private sector and the intelligence communities in the United States? Thank you. Well, I think this is the debate, which is we have taken a number of countries that have a different cultural value system and do not have a problem 
using this as an instrument. We have a problem at a certain level of degree and scope if it's being used as an instrument to Western countries vis-a-vis -vis certain types of clear violations of what we think are domestic laws protecting certain elements of what we understand as trade secrets or doctrine. That, that, that is a tension. Because the argument could be if you are, let's say, theoretically a communist nation, you may not believe in private property. So you may take the position, why are these people even concerned about this? Because we don't believe philosophically in the concept, and everything should be used for the benefit of all. Dimitri said, why don't we just take these secrets and make them totally open source public? Why, what would happen? Well, certain people would be concerned about that, right, for a variety of reasons. So part of, as you're saying, to me, one of the core problems is this is a deep values problem. For the record, I'm not a communist, Robin Hood. <laughs> well, today. So, um, but that becomes sort of the interesting question is, and the Sony's are perfect because of the First Amendment issue. That we thought that's a weaponization in a First Amendment, which we think is really beyond the pale. That's why I think down deep it's a very core value problem and value issues that we're confronting. I think there's a question to the gentleman right next to you, if you can pass the mic, and then way in the back next, there's a lady way in the back row. Hi, uh, my name is Robert Gerber. I'm with the Department of State, but I'm speaking on my own point of view. Um, I, don't, I don't think we should be naive, and I think we should be able to defend ourselves, but uh, I don't always think the government has the best solution. Um, or, or I think the private sector can probably do a better job. Uh, not being a lawyer, what pre is preventing American companies from defending themselves, I'm sorry, from conducting espionage against their competitors or retaliating in the case where an American company has been uh, violated by a foreign entity? What, what, uh, what laws prevent a company from uh, retaliating on its own? Principally, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which says that you cannot really, essentially cannot leave your network and go into someone else's network without authority from that other person. If you do, you've committed a felony. So no... Hmm? Mm -hmm. Even if they're overseas. Yes. yes. As long as you use a U.S instrumentality, a U.S. computer, uh, then U.S. law would apply to your uh, further acts. But you also have the Economic Espionage Act, right? Even if yes. you're not doing it through computers, if you have a human asset, you still have that's, legal issues. Right. That's why, ironically, you would require some state immunity from state or law enforcement and intelligence community to do it in order to get that immunity. Otherwise, you're violating U.S. law. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. That's sort of posseing up. That's why we have posse. Well, that's always the issue. But that's what a posse is. You're, you're deputizing civilians to perform a government function. That's the posse comitatus. That's what we're, that, that would be the cyber posse comitatus would be what we were looking for. What if you use a mole in that foreign country rather than a computer? So it would be a violation of the, the espionage laws of that country. Uh, You'd be but if it's economic, you're still violating the economic yeah. espionage. Yeah. I'd want to check. Again, it depends. In the back. Yes, I think there's a Hi, Roya Azarkavan, um, Foundation for Defense of Democracies, but again, I'm also speaking on my own behalf. I have a question as to where you think the suppliers of malware come into policy recommendations mm -hmm. and response, because as we all know of the very infamous hacking team, um, they've been accused of selling to the Russian FSB, they've been accused of selling to uh, countries that have conducted human rights abuses. And so I was wondering, where do they come in to respond, policy recommendations, sanctions, because they've been accused of avoiding, um, evading EU rules and sanctions? So before I answer that, I'll let my colleagues. First of all, how many of you can write an algorithm in the audience? Raise your hand. 
So there, the, keep your hands up. How many of you who do that spend time on the dark net? <laughs> so that is the group that's the most fascinating in this particular collection, and I'll let you guys do it. But at least we know who we're talking to now. That's the Wassenaar. Yeah, so there, uh, the question of what to do about trade in malware is very hot. It's been hot. It was raised in Wassenaar a couple of years yeah. ago and uh, um, uh, led by the Europeans, an effort to impose export controls on sales of uh, malware uh, was adopted. And the Commerce Department recently published to enormously bad reviews, a proposed rule that would try to impose export controls on malware. Uh, it turns out it's very hard to define what it is you're trying to control, and export controls turn out to be a very bad way to get at the, that problem, uh, as witnessed the fact that the Europeans had export controls for two years while hacking team was cheerfully selling all this stuff, and apparently legally they got what it appears a global license from the Italian government, which said, yeah, sure, what the heck. Uh, and so so uh, we, we have not found a really good solution to this. Probably the best solution turns out to be using criminal law and simply saying uh, yeah. uh, there have been several criminal cases where people have engaged in uh, um, uh, selling and uh, distribution of malware, and they've been criminally prosecuted. That may turn out to be the best solution, but we will go through at least two rounds of comments over uh, the possibility of using export controls. Right. It's, there's, that's what I say the stick. The carrots have been that certain companies have come forward and said, if you find zero-day problems in our products, we will pay you. So another way to do it is to create a competitive market for that phenomena and, and then reward those individuals by making it clear that give it to us rather than putting it on the dark net. So that's the other issue. Yeah, the issue of is who pays more. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I think, I think the, the, the Russians will pay more than uh, individuals. Well, then it's an interesting issue of incentives and tax issues and whether or not you can actually use other instruments in order to make it a taxable uh, you know, rundown. Back to this being an economic problem. Exactly. <laughs> that's, how you, that's one way of potentially solving it. Are we going to vote? Uh, we are. We're very okay, close I'm, to our vote. Do you have some nation you're waiting for? No, no, I just wanted to know. Left, so maybe okay. we'll take, why don't we take two more questions and then we'll take our final vote. Mike? Can we bribe the audience? Yeah, exactly. What was it? Can we bribe the audience? He didn't mean that. He didn't mean that. He said, can we give them incentives? <laughs> That's true. Harvey, Harvey has, be has beads. Exactly. And, and then maybe we'll end with this gentleman in the blue tie after Mike. From Tiffany's. Uh, Mike Nelson with Cloudflare. Um, we've talked primarily about government spying on behalf of companies, but another way of interpreting the phrase commercial espionage is corporate on corporate Absolutely. espionage. One of the reasons the Israelis are so good at hacking is that they do a lot of that company to company. Are there any lessons we can learn from the kind of things that we see where companies are going after each other? And is, is this a growing problem or is it something that's kind of minor compared to what we've been focusing on here? I, I think it's actually part of the same problem because, um, you know, the proposal here on the table is really how do you punish the companies regardless of who is doing it because I think our efforts at convincing governments that this is not uh, either an acceptable norm or that there will be cost to it have not panned out. 
And the ones that you can really put the pressure on are the beneficiaries, the companies, regardless of whether they're doing it themselves or, you know, PLA comes into their office and drops a bunch of goods on their, a uh, bunch of CDs or whatever, DVDs, I guess, uh, on their uh, on their desks. But wouldn't you say, I mean, my, my impression is that there, there are a fair number of hacking for profit, people who will uh, hack a company in order to get uh, information. That, um, and uh, it seems to me that we're going to see more and more of that, uh, it's just getting cheaper to get people who will do the hacking uh, than, they, than it used to be. Yeah, in some countries we see dedicated firms that work with the government. Exactly. The governments, uh, the intelligence right. agencies, for whatever reasons, have not created their own capabilities, so they just outsource it to the mm-hmm. private sector. Mm-hmm. And we're also seeing an increase in the corporate-on-corporate cyber sabotage, where people are taking down sites, corrupting databases. Right. They're not stealing the data necessarily, they're just making life really miserable for their competitors. Right, and then the question is, what's the remedy and penalty? It goes back to that central problem. We have a last question there, and then we're going to take a vote and see where everybody stands. Hello. Uh, my name is Patrick Stevenson. Um, until earlier this year, I was a speechwriter at uh, NATO. Hmm. I do have a, a question. I, I Really, I understand the argument about wanting to retaliate somehow, but I worry about escalation because there seems to be uh, an implied assumption that, say, the Chinese, for example, are doing all that they can in terms of uh, this kind of economic espionage. But I don't think that's true. I think that they could do much more if they wanted to. And if we retaliated, then they would retaliate further. And this becomes particularly scary, given that I think it was last year, a major international organ I want to say the World Bank. I'm not certain about that. But they revised their definition of uh, PPP, purchasing power parity, and discovered that by one measure, the Chinese economy was already larger than the U.S. economy. So is there a case to be made that maybe rather than focusing upon ways to retaliate, that we focus, that we've recognized that the current situation, as bad as it is, is still better than any of the the, uh, alternatives, and maybe we should focus as hard as we can upon improving the security of our systems? So I I, I guess I would would say uh, what you're saying is – it could be get, get wor- very, very bad, uh, and and I think that is a possibility. But uh, uh, one of the things that worries me is we are going down a path to uh, digitize massive amounts of our lives. Uh, uh, we've uh, moved from just having computer networks to having phone networks and phones full of um, a variety of uh, vulnerabilities that we have not yet explored that could cause uh, significant harm and lots of, of uh, uh, espionage uh, uh, losses to us. And then into the cloud and into the uh, Internet of Things, Again, full of vulnerabilities not yet explored. So we are dramatically increasing our risk and vulnerability to these attacks. We might be better off seeing how bad it can get now than seeing how bad it can get 25 years from now. I think if there's one thing that comes out of this debate is that we need more response options which is why I think we should absolutely consider declaratory policy on economic espionage as, as one of that options, not necessarily one that we would always resort to or one that's even the most beneficial, but we need more options. So uh, when I used to be in Cambridge, we said we need a, a chair of a professor of unintended consequences, that this always happens when you start having to um, pursue an action. So this issue for laying out this sort of where we are now, which is sort of a wild, wild west, with very few penalties being imposed on bad actors. 
And my sense is this vulnerability is going to remain for quite a while, let's say five to seven years or ten years. You're such an optimist. And one of the interesting issues is we're, can you increase defense or not? And will there, as you can imagine, there's a lot of money being spent on a whole range of techniques from, which was mentioned earlier, Silicon Valley versus Washington on encryption issues. A whole range of techniques that are trying to be developed. And what the balance will be will be quite intriguing before we go in a variety of instrumentalities. But I would prefer to have much more targeted instrumentalities that really isolate in a way the obvious example would be something with an OFAC that t is tailored and makes it clear whether it's government supported or not. The beneficiary economically has been this entity and this entity therefore must be targeted. And that's that values issue with certain states are more than willing to do and value and use an instrument for their own purposes. And the Schrage question of, wait a second, they have such a different understanding of what's going on. They have a, such a different value structure. That's not going to be the solution. Oh, oh he's afraid to. No, no, no. Or as I like to now say, doctrines. Doctrines seem to be the solution. Doctrines. So let's see where we all stand. We've come to the end of the debate. Take a poll. How many of you at this point have been swayed by the arguments, right? How many of you think the U.S. should still continue to completely abstain from engaging in economic espionage? Let's see a show of hands. We've increased. I think I we've won. <laughs> it looks right? very close I to think that much much the It looks much more to me. I see almost <laughs> a forest of hands. How Okay. Okay. Let's take a show of hands. We should restrain from economic retaliation, too. So yeah. there should be some economic oh, retaliation. You're for that. Raise your hands. <laughs> when stated positively, not same. as many votes. A lot, a lot of abstainers. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. <laughs> Please join me in thanking this incredible panel. Nice. <laughs>